going to invite you to the book of Mark. And we are in a new series together. We started last week called The Genius of Jesus. And we're, we're spending this summer going through the book of Mark uh, to, to look at the identity of who Christ is and why in the world it matters to us today. And I, just to kind of draw out the relevance of why I think it's important we spend time identifying the true nature of Christ and getting to know that. I, w- I want us to think about, uh, think about a penny this morning. <clears throat> you guys know what a penny looks like, right? I mean, who's on the front of the penny? You sure? <laughs> well, th- just think about these. I, you're right, it is Lincoln, but I'm going to ask just a few more questions. I don't, I, I don't, you don't have to answer all these out loud because if you don't know, I don't want you, I don't want you to embarrass yourself by saying these out loud. But, but if you think about the penny, since you know so much about the penny, you know what that looks like. Lincoln's on the front, right? What, what direction does he face? What words are written on the front of the penny? Or what about on the back, the building? What building's on? Is there a building on there? What, what, words, what words are on the back of the penny? Are there words on the back of the penny? Do I even know the penny? Like, right? I mean, the, you think about your whole life, you've dealt, with a, you've dealt with a penny, but probably I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of us couldn't name the words written on the front and back of the penny. We might be able to get the, the building on the back, maybe, but the idea of our whole life we've dealt with this, but we don't really know what is on the penny. Now, if I were to take that same penny and I were to throw it at you today, and I know if we know what the penny's worth today, right? I'd check it out, you'd be like, don't, don't touch me with that, right? Like, oh, it's a penny. If I were to do the same thing with like, I don't know, a hundred dollar bill, while that up there, I mean, that's worth a face punch to get it from your neighbor, right? <laughs> that, that, that is mine. The point is, you think about the, you think about the penny and yes, You've dealt with a penny your whole life, and we may not know exactly everything on the penny. It's a little bit surprising. You know, you've seen it. But how do you not know everything that's on the penny? Well, the penny, in comparison to other things in this world, just don't have value. But you think about a $100 bill, well, that has some value. You think about Jesus. Jesus is worthy of our praise. And Jared Wilson once said this in writing about Jesus. He said, you can look without seeing, but you can't see without looking. Understanding who Jesus is is significant to our lives. It's paramount to the Christian faith and eternity weighs on it. I say, I think it's, it's, it's important for us not to just say we've looked at Jesus. Everybody has opinions on who Jesus is. And frankly, some of them are just blasphemous. But we want to go through the study on Jesus so that we can recognize exactly who he is for the way that he identifies himself. And we're not going to this book of Mark just for information. I mean, information is important because we find truth in that. But we're not, we're not just going out of this book for information. The ultimate goal in, in looking to the book of Mark is transformation. God's word isn't there just for us to get smart. God's, God's word is there to impact our lives, to make an eternal difference in our relationship to God. And when John, I know we're in the book of Mark, but when John introduces uh, Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold the Lamb of God. What John is saying is what Jared Wilson affirmed. You can look without seeing, but you can't see without looking. And John's saying, just take a moment and pause at this. Behold who he is. And how significant it becomes to our lives. And so this morning we're, we're going to look at 
where we started last week in Mark chapter 1. When I, we introduced this to, uh, to us last week, we said, you know, Mark is really broken down into two halves. The first eight chapters of Mark is Jesus identifying himself, showing why uh, he's come, what, what his kingdom is about, and why we should trust in him. And in the middle of Mark, Mark uh, Jesus calls us to come and die for him, giving our lives to him. But before all of, those, all of that begins, the first 15 verses of Mark, it's the prologue to understanding who Jesus is. Mark gives this profound pronouncement on the identity of Jesus so that we wouldn't miss what's contained in the rest of the pages. And so we want to spend these first two weeks just going through these first 15 verses in the identity of Jesus so we could really see the, the rich depth of God's word and why that matters to our lives. So this is how we're going to do it this morning. We're going, to, we're going to talk about who Jesus is in identity. And then we're going to talk about why in the world you should even care. Because just identifying Christ as far as factually presentation, uh, you know, it's important. But when the rubber meets the road, we need to know why it matters to our lives. And so in Mark chapter 1, this is the way Mark begins the pronouncement of this gospel. It's a declaration statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We said last week the word gospel is a word of victory for kings. It's a proclamation of a success, a win. And so this is the the victory cry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And and I told you last week what we're going to focus on is the title the title of who Jesus is. And that's what Mark is delivering to us by the pronouncement of this victory cry. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If we talk about Jesus Christ this morning, oftentimes we identify that as a name. His name is Jesus Christ, right? But when the gospel writers are identifying Jesus, not only are they calling him out by name, but they're identifying him in terms of title and position. Jesus' name, as much as it is a name, is maybe even more so a title of his position and representation of who he is. And so Jesus, when Mark gives this declaration, means salvation, Yeshua, the saving one. And Christ carries this idea of, of anointing. And I think most specifically on the backdrop of this text, it's in reference to the anointing of a king. So the saving king, the son of God, has come. Jews anointed their kings for ministry. When it comes to this idea of, of Messiah, you'll see within scripture, they, they use this term over and over for Jesus. And what's interesting about this word for Christ or Messiah, anointed one, is that Jesus never used the title for himself. Jesus instead referred to himself as the son of man, which is also a claim to deity. But this idea of uh, of, of Christ Jesus, I don't think ever used it to refer to himself because so many people during Jesus' time had, had such a poor idea of what the Messiah represented that Jesus didn't want to confuse the culture by taking on the title and, and the misconceptions they were perceiving with it. But the idea of this name is important for us to understand because it's shaping for us the identity of Christ. When you look at Mark chapter 1 verse 11... You remember last week we broke this up for us so we can understand exactly what was happening here. But Jesus Christ is the, the, the saving anointed king. And when you go to G- Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1 verse 11, you see in verse 11, as John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus, <clears throat> there's a pronouncement that's made. And the pronouncement that's made is made by God the Father. And so in this story it tells us that God the Father speaks from heaven... And the spirit descends. 
In the Old Testament, when they anointed someone for ministry, a, a, a priest could be anointed, a king could be anointed. The anointing was a representation of the Spirit of God coming over that person to do the work that God had called them to into this world. When Jesus goes to the baptism with John the Baptist, Jesus is baptized or he's anointed in, in the water. But what we see in this passage, rather than just assume the spirit of God comes in him, we actually see the spirit of God come upon him. The spirit descends like a dove. It's anointing Jesus as king for the work of the ministry he's called to in this world. And just so that we don't miss that this, this anointing is one of kingship, when the Father speaks and the Spirit descends, the Father then says from heaven, you are my beloved Son. That phrase, you are my beloved Son, it comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is a kingship psalm. When Israel elected a new king, they would sing Psalm 2 over that king as he was anointed. Israel also knew within the context of that song that that psalm was written so richly at such a depth that a human being could not live up to the standards of Psalm 2. So they also saw it as a messianic psalm, something future proclaiming who the Messiah actually would be. And so when Jesus is being baptized, he's also being anointed as the king for Israel and the king really of the world, the king of kings and lord of lords called into this world to conduct the ministry of the spirit of God descends upon him. And so when John's making this pronouncement, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He doesn't want us to miss the identity of Jesus as being the saving king who's come for the world. In addition, this title, Son of God, is important to recognize. Because it's a claim to deity. He's the saving king because he is God. This phrase, son of God, was a common term. It was a term Mark borrowed from the culture. It was a term used through, through scripture. It was a term that the Romans would use to refer to their emperor. And so this, this term was a common term. But the Jews are also monotheistic. And the claim that they're attributing here to Jesus is one of deity. One of the misconceptions that we assume about this phrase, son of God, is the way that we would read into it in the 21st culture, right? So if, if you have a son, that means you actually birthed a, a child, and, and therefore, you know, it's the son. But we're, we're walking in error when we assume that 21st century definition to the first century word or term, the son of God. Son of God doesn't mean that God had a physical kid. In fact, when you follow the phrase Son of God within other references of, of Scripture, we, we talked about this last week with the, the idea of bar mitzvah, which meant the Son of Commandments. It's, it, the, the, uh, the Jewish culture uses that term bar mitzvah, it's not in, in the Bible, but the Son of the Commandments, that, that they represent what the commandments are. When a ch- child in Jewish culture reaches the age of 13, they've studied the Old Testament, they, they could recite long portions of Scripture, and they have a bar mitzvah to show his maturity into adulthood, and he's called the Son of the Commandments, the Son of the Law. In Acts 4.36, Barnabas is called the Son of Encouragement. In John 17, 12, Judas is called the son of perdition or the son of hell. James and John and Mark 3 are referred to as the sons of thunder. And so what this phrase son of is representing is it's equating the identity of someone towards a particular nature. And so it's not saying to us that commandments, encouragement, and perdition, and thunder all have children. 
But what it's saying to us is the representation of those characteristics are demonstrated in their lives. And so when it's using the word son of God as it relates to Jesus, the identity for us is to recognize that Jesus is the representation of the nature of God. In fact, when you look at the title that Jesus carried throughout all of scripture, there's several verses that speak to his deity. But in Hebrews 1.3, it says this, and he, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of his, the father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. No one held that characteristic except God in the flesh. Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God in the flesh. And so when this term son of God is used in reference to Jesus, it's identifying his deity. Colossians 2.9 says this, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 9, he who has seen me. I've seen the Father. They're one and the same in their nature. To look at Jesus as the demonstration in the flesh of the nature of the Father. In the Gospel of John, in order to elaborate on this title, Son of God, John takes it a little step further and says this For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. This speaks to the uniqueness of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that we can become children of God. To those that embrace them, you become the children of God. But not in the way that Jesus is referred to as the son of God. Because he's the only one like this. And the uniqueness of Jesus, when you study this phrase, only begotten son of God in the Greek language, the word, the word choice they use here is monogenes. Mono means one. Genes is where we get the words for genes or genetics. He is the only one that has the makeup of the Father, the nature of the Father within him. To look at Jesus is to look at God. God in the flesh living out his life on earth. So when Mark makes this claim, he's making this claim as Jesus being the saving king, capable of saving because he is God come in the flesh. And when Mark builds on this idea of the Son of God, if you were to read later in Mark in chapter 15 when Jesus is being crucified, there's a story of a centurion. A centurion is a Roman official working for the Roman government in the army. When political leaders during the time of Jesus and beyond, when they would operate in political office, one of the qualifications that they had to meet was to refer to the emperor as the Son of God. If they were to ever make the pronouncement that the emperor wasn't the son of God or claim someone else to be the son of God, they were also told that they would immediately have to leave their post. They would have to step down from their political position. And in Mark chapter 15, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him, talking about Jesus on the cross, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Coming from an individual that's supposed to make this pronouncement about the emperor. He's now substituted the position of the emperor for the claim of who Christ is. So that we wouldn't miss the idea of Jesus and his identification. And so when Mark makes this pronouncement in Mark chapter 1 verse 1. It's going in the face against the Roman culture. And you think about Mark, the context of the audience. Mark is written to the Romans. 
And Mark is putting his foot down on the declaration of who Jesus is, the beginning of the gospel, the victory cry that Christ has overcome the grave, the King of kings and Lord of lords has won. Jesus Christ, the gospel of him, the Son of God. When loyalty was told to belong to the emperor, his pronouncement of his loyalty is belonging to Jesus as Lord. From the declaration that Mark makes in verse 1, he then gives the demonstration of this in Jesus' life. And you see it in the baptism, the anointing of the king, the declaration of the Father, and the Spirit of God descending on him to call him and identify him to the witnesses around that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But beyond that, he also went into the wilderness. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Right after Jesus' baptism. Let me go back to that for a moment. Right after Jesus' baptism. After the Father pronounces, you're my beloved son, he says, in you I am well pleased. And this phrase, as a reminder to us again, was from Isaiah chapter 42. We talked about this last week. The Jewish people knew what Isaiah chapter 42 represented. Remember, they're bar mitzvahs. They're sons of the commandment. They studied God's word. To them, the Old Testament was the only testament. They could recite long chapters. And they knew Isaiah chapter 42 to Isaiah chapter 53 was considered the suffering servant text of Scripture. And by the way, they didn't have chapter divisions back then or verse, verse places in the Bible. That didn't come until the 12th century and the 15th century. And so to know where someone was referring to in the Bible, you had, to be, you had to memorize it. And so when the Jews would hear the beginning of Isaiah 42, they would understand in context, this is, this is the suffering servant passage of Scripture from Isaiah 42 to 53. And so this pronouncement in Mark 1 verse 11 is saying, Jesus is God and he's coming as this suffering servant. And so what you see in Mark chapter 1 verses 12 and on, Jesus then goes into the wilderness And it's the demonstration in this section, these two verses in Mark, it's in chapter 4 of Matthew, that Jesus is demonstrating how he is that sufficient suffering servant for sin. It says immediately, this this word immediately is founded uh, throughout the book of Mark. It's a phrase that Mark wants to use because he's writing his gospel to the Romans. The Romans are people of action. And so he says, as, as Jesus is baptized, immediately he goes into the wilderness to demonstrate himself as a sufficient sacrifice. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, which is the desert. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. And the idea that Mark, Mark is carrying at the end with wild beasts and angels is to demonstrate the authority of Jesus, that he has control over the animals and the angels. But what's interesting within the context is that the Spirit immediately led him out here and he has control over these things. In verse 13, he goes for 40 days and he's being tempted. There's different words for being tempted in Scripture. But in this passage, this word for tempted means to, to, to test or to try. 40 was a significant number in Jewish history. 40 is how many days that the earth flooded. It rained 40 days and 40 nights during the time of Noah. Forty days was the amount of time that Moses went on the, the, to the top of Mount Sinai. Forty lashes was the amount of maximum punishment that someone would receive if they broke the law. 
And in connection to the people of Israel, 40 days was the number, or 40 years was the number of years that they wandered in the wilderness in disobedience to God. And I think what Jesus is demonstrating in this passage is how he is the true Israel. While God called the people of Israel from Egypt, wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and for 40 years they were disobedient to God. But Jesus surrenders to the will of the Father. And while Israel faltered for 40 years, Jesus in 40 days demonstrated during the time of testing her trial that it was a sufficient sacrifice. His comparison to the people of Israel who were disobedient as God's people and Jesus being the obedient one under the will of the Father as seen in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 to 11. Because when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's being tempted... He continues to quote from the book of Deuteronomy, which is what Moses writes for the people of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness during those 40 years. Jesus in this story is carrying the idea of of being the anointed king in his baptism and the sufficient sacrifice in the wilderness. That even the angels obey. And then it tells us, as you look at the story, And the demonstration of who Jesus is, when you see his baptism, you're seeing the king, and when you see in the wilderness, you're seeing the suffering servant, it's a a beautiful picture for us and the sufficiency of Jesus. And then it tells us in Mark 14, Jesus begins his ministry and says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In this good news, in this proclamation, the kingdom was here. When you think in terms of the kingdom, the kingdom should be what all of us pursue. Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. Pray in this way, Jesus taught us. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. When God created mankind, Making us in his image, he created us to connect to him in relationship for all of eternity. To delight in his glory. To be worshipers forever. To fill our hearts with him. Man sinned to turn from God. And pursued for lesser gods or idols. And rather than give our hearts that were created totally for God, we give our hearts to other things. And in that, from the sin from the garden, the kingdom we were separated from. The Bible tells us once having peace with God, we no longer have peace. And the desire for our soul would be to yearn to see that peace again. In fact, I think most, most so in our lives when we experience the death of someone close to us, we, we grieve at, at such an extent within our hearts that we can't even put words to relate how broken we feel when we experience that in life. Why? There's no longer any shalom. 
There is no peace. And we need a king big enough to suffice the brokenness of this world to restore what's been lost. And, and Jesus comes and he declares that kingdom. And he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, the kingdom is in your midst. Jesus comes with the pronouncement of that kingdom and the offering of that kingdom. But at the same time, that kingdom hasn't fully arrived. And let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus after his death and resurrection, just before his ascension, they say, are you going to restore the kingdom? And what Jesus is offering is peace. Reconciliation to him. You see, at the end of Revelation, as Jesus restores that kingdom, he tells us in chapter 21 that there's no more pain, no more suffering. That has all been gone away, that God is with his people. Anyone with eyes can look around and see that things are not fully as they should be. And Jesus' purpose in coming was to offer a kingdom that brings us peace. Then we see reality where there isn't peace. This brings me to this last thought I want to share. Luke chapter 2, Jesus and offering this kingdom, coming to earth for that purpose. In Luke chapter 2, God shares an interesting statement with Mary. Luke chapter 2 is the passage where Mary takes baby Jesus to the temple. It's what you did with your firstborn. You make a sacrifice before the Lord. And Simeon was a prophet who was there. And God uses Simeon to give a prophecy into Mary's life. In Luke chapter 2, verse 35, it's such an interesting statement that he would say to Mary, you think the time of birth is a time of celebration, time of rejoicing, time to be happy, time to keep your bad news away if you can. And then Simeon says this to Mary, the sword will pierce even your own soul. What do you do with that? <laughs> you know, I think when it comes to God's will, I've said this, I just kind of use it as a rule of operating and it doesn't work in this verse. But when it comes to God's will, I don't, I don't want to know everything that God has for me. I, I don't want to know because I think it would be too overwhelming and I would, I would do better in a corner in a fetal position than I would to live out that will, it's, it, that will for the Lord. It's just it's too much. I would prefer for God to just light that path each step of the way. You know, I think as people, we go through different seasons of life, and we're not always ready for the next season until we've gone through the season that we're currently in. And about the time you become an expert of that season, then God changes it up, right? I, I want to know God's will, you know, one step at a time. But here for Mary, he's declaring to her something that's going to happen 30 years from now. At the time of a birth, let me give you some horrible news. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. That's fantastic, isn't it? What do, you, what do you do with that? How do you respond to something like, like that? And why in the world would God want to say something like that to her? Why don't you just let her figure it out later? And if I, I pause on that thought for just a second and, and said, you know, I, I've met people in life that when they, experience, when they experience difficult things, they become atheists. Through hardship, they've, they've become atheists. You know, I, 
while atheists may be what they've pursued in life, I don't think atheism, and I don't say this to offend anybody, just, just to think, I, I don't think atheism is a step forward. I think it's a step backward. In fact, I, if I didn't believe that, I shouldn't be up here probably today. An atheist may look at, a, a bad, at the bad and assume there, there isn't a God because they can't see the good. This tends to be why in this circumstance they may turn that way. But unfortunately, resorting to atheism only causes more problems because if you deny God's existence, it gives you no basis for acknowledging good or evil. Let me explain. If there is no God, there is no moral lawgiver. And if there is no moral lawgiver, there is no ultimate good or evil for which to even be upset when bad things happen. And if there's no good or evil, there is no ultimate basis for morality, worth, or value. You're no more special than the dirt on the ground. And there's no reason to be upset about anything, for there is no universal morality to govern the world. Meaning, if you just evolved and you happened in circumstance, if something bad happens to you, big deal. There's no morality to govern what's bad to begin with. And anything that happens to you is no more important than what happens to the dust on the ground, because that's where you came from. Without a moral lawgiver, there's no reason to cry foul in the world when bad things happen. But the reason we cry foul when bad things happen is because we're acknowledging that there's something good for which all things are governed by within the context of our world. And so when you cry out, there is no God because bad things happen, your very statement acknowledges the existence of a God. And so atheism is not an answer to the problem of the world rather a step backwards from the solution. But it still doesn't give an answer. Why in the world would God say this to Mary? Why would he say, and a sword will pierce even your own soul? I'm going to give you a thought, and I think it is especially important to us to answer the question, why in the world does anything that we share this morning matter? Why does the identity of, why, why should I care about the identity of Jesus? Okay, he's the son of God, Jesus Christ, saving king, who cares? Why does it matter? I think it matters, especially as we relate to Mary because of this. When you go through adversity in life, the primary question you ask, God, where are you? Do you care? God, where are you? If bad things are happening to me, are you, are you even there? In the midst of her soul being pierced, in the midst of seeing Jesus die on the cross, John chapter 19, I think, verse 35. In that moment, in the depth of experiencing the piercing of her soul, Mary had a place to go back to. Say, God didn't abandon me. In the midst of this pain, God's right here. How do I know? Because he already knew this moment would come and he'd already declared it to me and he knew that this moment was going to fall on my shoulders. And I would experience the hardship of what it is 
But he cared enough about me in that moment to share with me that I was going to experience this so that I could recognize in the midst of this suffering that God hadn't abandoned me, that he was still with me, that even though the kingdom hadn't fully arrived yet and all things been restored, the peace of God rests with me because God is with me in this circumstance. God cares. And the story of Christianity in the midst of hardship, I think, is the best answer out of any religious explanation that exists in this world that, that God cares enough about you to enter into your suffering. The saving King has come. And just because bad things happen doesn't mean God cares. In fact, the gospel says the exact opposite. That Jesus enters into it. And Jesus loves us in it. And the king will restore all things. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.